Good afternoon. Welcome to episode. It's episode eight. We're on here of the True Say podcast. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the last episode, which was obviously with Max Fosh. Um, this episode, however, we are once again joined by uh, a guest, um, and Ethan is also with us again this time. Um, this is his first interview. Um, Although it doesn't really feel like an interview, it was good because we just got on, as you'll hear, and had a chat about all sorts. But this is with the wonderful Simon Stevens, who is a fantastic, fantastic writer um, and has got an incredible career of, of work. And he's he's done a lot. And for me, he was quite integral in my decision to become an actor um, as you'll hear me talk about in the interview um, and he's also from Manchester and how can you not love someone from Manchester I mean look at me all the best people are from Manchester uh, so it was an absolute honour getting him on the show to be honest um, we, we discuss a variety of things such as his influences and why he's a playwright and we also talk about uh, two of his plays Punk Rock which is a very famous play of his and we also talk about uh, one that I'm currently studying Motortown we have a good chat about both things Um, and we learn a lot from him he's a very inspirational guy very good talker Um, yeah it's been brilliant chatting to him but anyway I'll stop waffling um, and I'll let you guys listen to the interview and then we can have a proper chat at the end alright Cool. Enjoy. Right, so I'm joined as per with Ethan. How you doing, mate? You good. Hi, I'm all right, mate. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm all right. I'm getting by, staying alive, yeah. staying <laughs> alive. Yeah. <laughs> we're not alone though today. Uh, it's not just me and Ethan. We're very, very fortunate to have Olivier Antonio Award-winning Simon Stevens with us. Uh, thank you for coming on, Simon. Really absolute pleasure. It. Absolute pleasure. I'm staying alive too, man. <laughs> Good. In the words of the Bee Gees, we're all staying alive. Stockport yeah. boy is the Bee Gees. Yeah, you're a Stockport boy, aren't you? I am, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm from Manchester, so I know Stockport I, very well. Yeah, it, it's it's quite odd to me that the Bee Gees were... I, actually, I say they're Stockport, they're certainly Mancunian. Uh, yeah, I think it's... Is it, is it they Charlton? admit Manchester in their, uh, in their soul, but they, they are. Yeah, I think it is it Charlton area that I think they're from, or like similar. I, I just don't know. You, you're more right than I am. <laughs> yeah, so I, I yeah, I'm um, I'm Man- Manchester boy, and my dad's from Stockport. So oh, great. Oh, there nice. we go. Yeah, we've got that in common. Uh, so before we do like get chatting, um, we have a question that we ask everyone that we get on, okay. which is, have you got like a favourite film or TV series or play or anything? Any like favourite? I don't know what you would call it. Whatever. Yeah, anything like creative based. Wow. I've got I mean I've got so many. Oh, if I had to choose one, uh for all kinds of sentimental reasons, I'll say uh Martin Scorsese's film Taxi Driver. Oh. Yeah. Oh, what a fair yeah. 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 It's not a very <laughs> sentimental film, actually, as films go. <laughs> yeah. Oh that's yeah, that's a fantastic film. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, I think everyone who mo- most people that are in the the acting world have probably seen, and that means quite a lot to them. That film, I think. 
a lot of my mates it does anyway. Mm. Um, really yeah. fascinating, beautifully edited. The, the more I watch it, the more the kind of elements of the filmmaker's craft seem kind of uh, startling to me, not just kind of De Niro's performance or the other kind of amazing, amazing performances in it. Um, mm. But you know the the editing, the 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 direction of photography, the score, so beautifully, beautifully yeah. exploration of that remarkable city at that remarkable time in its history. I think as well, if it wasn't for Taxi Driver, there'd be a lot of films that might not exist because I think that like paved the way for a lot of films. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for Taxi Driver, I don't think I'd be a writer. Really? Was that like a yeah key thing? Hmm. That and David Lynch's Blue Velvet in the eighties. In in uh, I was a kind of teenager in the eighties, um, in the early years of the VHS recorder, which sounds really banal, but actually was really key to the decimation of film, because it was like the first time that people could curate their own experience of what films they're going to watch. Is like nowadays you want to watch a film, it's there somewhere. You might have to pay a couple of quid to Amazon for it or something, but it's fundamentally there. In the 80s, it, um, before the VHS recording, the only films you could watch at home were um, whatever the BBC or ITV decided to put on. Um, the VHS recorder opened up the whole market of cinema. And me and my mates just used to hire videos every Friday and Saturday night. Hmm. And, uh, the two that really startled and, and, and moved me and inspired me most would be David Lynch's Blue Velvet and Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, which I still kind of think fundamentally, you know, in my work, all I'm really trying to do is try and do what those two films do. Yeah. That mixture of horror and honesty and nightmare and uh, nightmare and truth and desire and mess. I think if anyone's like ever read any of your work as well, I know like I'm currently working on Motortown and I know Ethan, you've worked on punk rock before. Yeah, I was, I was going to do, I was playing William um, in punk rock um, right. and because of COVID, I wasn't able to do it. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it's an, it, I was absolutely gutted because it's, well, it was my first like big, big main role and I right. had a few posters around. I'm from Wales. I'm West Wales, boy, I am. It's not hard to miss. <laughs> um, and so, I, I, yeah, it, it was great. And uh, we had great rehearsal and I did a fantastic uh, course, a one-year acting course in a college, mm -hmm. in a college. My, my tutor, Wynn, um, when he introduced this play, he was like, this, this thing rocks. Like, it, it, it's insane. It's insane. And when we read it, I just, and I, I've, most of my life, I went to boarding school. Um, right. So the, what I wanted to say was the amount of detail that you had in that about private schools. Right. Um, the people, the, the way you described how it was, um, reading it was literally like going back to school. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's honestly I, I'm not I, I'm not like it, it really um it hit a nerve that I didn't expect it to um and that that's like something I want to ask what was your how did you get that much detail how did you like fi fig figure that out and find it it's funny you know because I it's not the kind of school that I went to uh I went to a state school in Stockport in South Manchester as we talked about um Weirdly, it was an all-boys state school, which is kind of right. uh, increasingly rare nowadays, but I think it was one of the last all-boys state schools in uh, Manchester, 
or in uh, Stockport, maybe Education Borough was Stockport. Um, but it was a very different school to the school portrayed in, in, in punk rock. Mm. Um, and when I was a teacher, I was a school teacher for a couple of years, but I was teaching uh, a quite a big state school in Dagenham in Essex, which is very different to the school in punk rock. The, the first kind of private school I had any kind of interaction with, and Stockport has a major grammar school, very close to the school that I went to, across right, the okay. road yeah. from the school that I went to. And uh, it wasn't the case when I was there in the 80s, but in the 60s and 70s, there were legendary fights between the kind of comp and the private school. Yeah. That, that it still I, happens now, still happens now. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I certainly think the legends are ongoing, whether or not they're actually, you know, re real fights, I don't I don't know. It's more in, rugby derby matches now. <laughs> right, okay, yeah. The, um, um, but um, the first private school I went to was in Leicestershire. There's a, or Derbyshire, there's a weird amount of private schools in the kind of Derbyshire area, boarding schools in the Derbyshire area. And um, somebody found my email on the internet and invited me to come and speak to the kids. Uh, and they asked me to speak for 15 minutes. Uh, and they said, we'll pay you 300 quid for 15 minutes. Yeah, that sounds about <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, all right. I do that um and uh you know so i went up and you know they gave me a really delicious roast beef meal as well yeah. and yeah. all the kids were kind of like beautifully dressed and kind of serving me wine <laughs> this is not a bad way to spend a tuesday night um, <laughs> but uh i became quite fascinated by the kids there because although on the surface they had a great deal of poise and they were really polite and um eloquent and and and, and well-mannered you spend any kind of time talking to them they had the same fear and the same neuroses yeah. and the same anxiety yeah. and the same kind of chaos and uncertainty as the kids that I taught and as the kids that I was 100%. at school with yeah and it's somebody kind of like came from a fundamentally kind of um center left-wing political position the idea that rich kids could be fucked up too was kind of, was really yeah, fascinating. 100%, 100%. I think, I think that's, that's something that I've, I've always pushed because when I say, oh, I've been to a boarding school, they go, mm. oh, you must be minted then. Or, oh, I bet you know the queen. And I, I seriously get things. And you're like, no, not, it's, that's not how it works. People have genuinely asked if you know the queen. I seriously, <laughs> my mother's life, my mother's life. Somebody said, oh, have you met like the Ranier Royal family? Like the, I was like, no, no, I haven't. <laughs> I'm from like, like town in Wales. Like, of course I haven't. It's, and it, cool. it's that, it, I think you nailed it with, with punk rock because you had that that truth, that honesty with those students, like you just said. And I really related to that because I, I was one of them. I, 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 didn't, I didn't shoot anybody, but I, <laughs> I, I definitely had those struggles in my head and I definitely had that pressure to be that good student um, yeah. and try and be something that maybe I wasn't. But then ultimately it made me the person I am today, which I'm yeah. so grateful for. And mm. I, that's what private school gave me. And um, I knew if I went anywhere else, I wouldn't have got that. So there's all there's all kinds of complications around the kind of private the, the economic oh, structures surrounding private school to unpick. It, yeah. but, you know, it's it, it, it's it'd be lazy thinking to assume that everybody who goes to private school is rich. Yeah. You know, there's absolutely. there's an awful lot of people who sacrifice a huge amount to send their kids to somewhere yeah. that they think will be good for their kids. And that puts those kids under an immense amount of pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because um, you know, they end up let the idea of letting their parents down becomes intolerable to them or unbearable. Or um, you know, in 
I was just working in a school in Godalming uh, a couple of years ago and they were doing punk rock there and I went to uh, meet the, the drama teacher and talk about that and like 60% of their intake were from uh, were given bursary places from inner central London yeah. uh, kind of like quite damaged families in the center of London yeah, yeah, yeah. and kids have been taken out of school and sent to this private school that was kind of like you know 40 percent were, were sorry rich kids and 60 yeah. percent were quite broken central London kids who were just yeah. being given another opportunity away from environments that were toxic to them so you know it'd be lazy to homogenize but I was I, when when um when the uh when the massacre at I think it was Indian Indianapolis State happened, which was the second major school shooting in the US in the start of the 21st century. When that happened, I remember, because I used to be a school teacher and because I had kids who were at that time were coming up to being teenagers, I remember thinking, you know, what would it be like if there was a school shooting in a school in Britain? You know, where would somebody get their gun from? Hmm. Uh, and being struck by the idea that it may well not be the kind of you know the, the the major problems with knife crime around and very occasionally in yep. central uh, inner city urban schools, hmm. but not guns as yet. And I th and I just thought, what if it was actually a private school? What if it was one of those kids in that school in Derbyshire had got hold of a gun somehow because they yeah. might have the accessible money? Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. And, and and I just kind of like. It was, it was partly following the line of that thought, um, being massively moved and inspired by Gus Van Zandt's masterpiece film, Elephant, which is, which is a, I don't know if you know that movie, but it's no, an no. extraordinary no, film and would really urge anybody listening, um, uh, li li listening to this to have a look at that film, which is about the Columbine massacre. Uh, it's a really haunting film. Uh, and then other things like Frank Vedekin's play, the original stage play of Spring Awakening, um, was a massive influence as well. Uh, Bruckner's Pains of Youth. So there's bits from other plays, there's bits from other films, there's bits from those kids I met in Derbyshire, but there's also bits of my teaching from Dagenham and bits of my yeah. memories of going to school myself, you know? Because in the end, I think one of the things that I started realising around the time of writing punk rock was that wealth does not necessarily or access to money does not necessarily kind of mean that your life uh is 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 entirely free of any problems you know yeah and, yeah i mean it's for, for me it's quite interesting because punk rock was i mean it's uh, why it's an absolute honor to have you on is because punk rock for me was one of the first plays i ever read and i actually to be honest i put it down to reading that that because i grew up doing a lot of musical theater um and I think after I read that was one of the things that made me go, actually, maybe the the like the straight acting side of it's probably more for me. Okay. Um, yeah, so oh, uh, nice. it's, it's great hearing about the inspiration behind it and stuff. Because I'm really touched by that. That's really yeah. Great to say thank you. That's quite all right. Thank you for writing it. <laughs> yeah. It's a great play. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to say it if you hadn't written it. But you, you mentioned you mentioned about when you were um, at school and whatnot. Um, just what. Is it always been a thing wanting to be a playwright and a writer, or was it something that happened a bit when you were a bit older, or it, like what was it that you wanted to be? It was always, uh, always, a, uh, always been a thing to want to be a writer rather than a playwright. Um, 
I didn't really go to the theatre a great deal when I was a kid at all. There was kind of like there'd be annual um, kind of like Christmas trips to see like West End touring shows in, in like Manchester Palace. You know, I remember going to see Barnum uh, there and West Side Story I saw there as well. And my mum and my uncle were both in amateur dramatics uh, in Altrincham Garrick. And, uh, and and so I went to see them a little bit, but we never really... I used to, went... I used to do shows at the Altrincham Garrick for years. Yeah. <laughs> for years. <laughs> my uncle was in a production of The Long, The Short and The Tall there. And, uh, you know, that was like in the mid 80s. But but really, apart from that, I never really went to the theatre. It wasn't an art form I felt as though I had great access to or felt as though it kind of spoke in, in any direct way to me. But I've always wanted to be a writer for as long as I can remember. From, you know, bef almost before I can remember, I think I've read to help make sense of my uh, position in the universe. I, I, I learned recently, this I find really interesting, I learned recently that the etymological root of the verb to read comes from the same Greek word as the as um, as the verb to weaponize or to arm, and uh, that it means it's a Greek word that translates as to fix or to fit, and it's it's what what that kind of suggests to me in my in my reading of it is that there are some people who will try and fix their position in the world or fit the world into their sense of self with tools or even with weapons. And there are some who'll do it by reading. And I'm definitely somebody who's just made sense of what it is to be alive by reading. I mean, you know, I'm surrounded by books. Um, it's really, really key to me and always has been. And I think I've, I've written as well as a means of exploring and escaping for as long as I can remember. But I never, I never wrote plays. The, the, the form that I, that I most often wrote was songs. I often, I often talk about how I went to school when I was at Mile End, when I was at Stop, uh, Mile End was the colloquial name of the school. Um, there was an element it might have been exaggerated in my mind, um, an element to which if you admitted to liking reading or liking literature or writing for fun, you'd just get battered. <laughs> and I, yeah. I actually don't know if that's a fair representation of the people I went to school with, but I think that was what I felt at the time. But the one, the one literary form you could admit to loving was uh, songwriting and kind of lyrics. And, and for when I was a teenager, I just fell in love with, at the time, it was largely men who'd written lyrics that felt literary and intelligent and searching and helped me feel kind of a little bit less alone. Uh, and I just wanted to emulate them. So between like the ages of like 10 and um, 20, I must have written about 600 songs. I must have must have written about 60 songs a year for those kind of 10 years. We were in a band because we we read that you were, you were in a band at one yeah, point. That yeah, that comes later in the story, man. That's a really <laughs> good story. But I was in loads of bands in my teenage years. When I went to university, I uh, two things happened. One was I realised I had a really terrible singing voice, so I was never going to emulate you know, Elvis Costello or Shane McGowan or Marky e. Smith or any of the people who I adored. Um and, and the second thing, and, and it's embarrassing to admit this, and I should stop admitting it, but it's true, is at the time, all the most attractive girls at York University wanted to be actresses. 
and and in a and in a pathetic and fruitless and embarrassing attempt to meet these incredibly exotic girls from places like Surrey or Kent or something, I, I went often to see really terrible, terrible student productions of plays that made no sense to me of my life at all. Like I remember seeing one peculiarly awful production of the Real Inspector Hound, um, and just thinking this is unbearable and these kind of like brilliant people cool kids and beautiful women just aren't going to talk to me but this room's interesting like this tiny contained room with a live audience reminded me a little bit of going to gigs like when I was the art form that I grew up with uh, the live art form I grew up with was live music. I'd get on the 192 from Stockport into Manchester every Friday and Saturday night and go and watch a live band. I remember sitting in what is called the drama barn at York University and thinking, God, imagine if 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 this wasn't the real Inspector Hound. Imagine if this was like Taxi Driver or Blue Velvet, but you were in the same room as Frank Booth or as Travis Bickle and you could close the doors that would be fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I kind of just started thinking about plays that came from the same place as Scorsese and Lynch came from, but I had to say the live energy of going to see a, a Fall gig or a Pixies gig. And I didn't know anything about playwriting. I didn't understand about playwriting history. Didn't know anything about the structures of work or how plays are produced or any of that. I just started writing plays and I wrote them and, produced them, directed them myself at York University in the Student Drama Society. Yeah, I think as well, like you say, with the trying to get the energy of like Taxi Driver onto stage, mm. like, like as I mentioned with Motortown, yeah. feels that that's quite clear. It's like, what, you know, I'm on record as saying it's my tribute to Taxi Driver. Because, you know, Taxi Driver is about, Taxi Driver is like the best, I think one of the best Vietnam films. But it's only it's it's only there's like one line in Taxi Driver where he talks about Vietnam, you know. It's just the whole film comes out of a war zone, but he just takes the war zone and brings it back to New York in 1975. And what I tried to do was to take the war zone of Basra, uh, of the Second Iraq War, and bring it back to Dagenham. Mm. This this kid who'd been because when when the war happened and. Um, when the war happened in Basra, there was a great sense of indignation at the illegality and amorality of the war. And a lot of that rage and indignation uh, was turned on the soldiers who fought there, which I thought was kind of morally reprehensible, really, because fundamentally, you know, I went to meet soldiers in the research of the production of the play and I was really startled by meeting people who were kind of like 19 years old and had been in war zones, you know, uh, and been in war zones, whether or not the war was ostensibly in my name, whatever the fuck that phrase means, had been in war zones representing a government that I'd been part of a democracy that I'd elected and that I'd voted for. And the idea I was sending a 19-year-old into, a, you know, to deal with car bombs and, and, and kind of suicide bombs in Basra. Yeah. And then, and then people were judging those 19-year-olds felt immoral to me. And I just wanted to write about one of those guys. What was, like, the first play that you wrote, like, the way that you remember? Was it before Motortown, was it? Or was that, like, one oh, of the hell first? Yeah, oh, mate, I remember all of them. 
So my first professionally produced play uh, was a play that I wrote in 1997 and was produced in 1998 at the Royal Court Theatre, and that's a play called Bluebird. And that was the first professionally produced play and the first published play. And that's been produced recently. It was my first play that was produced in New York um, and, and still gets productions every so often. Uh, it's got a very large cast, which can kind of lend itself well to kind of, you know, places like Altering and Garrick will probably do it one day because you can get roles for everybody in it. Yeah. Um, but, but Bluebird wasn't my first play. It was my eighth play. I wrote my first play in sixth form and then produced it at university and then decided to really become a playwright at university. By the time I left university, I kind of realised if I ever did anything in my life other than be a playwright, I'd always be in some way disappointed with myself. And a notion of living a life defined by its disappointment seemed unbearable to me. So by the t- I, I went to live in Edinburgh and I just wrote more plays. I, I directed them myself, put them on in tiny theatres, getting like audiences of like four and, and, you know, kind of like one of the four would normally walk out just not because they were shocked or appalled by the swearing or the violence, but because they were just bored and they had better things to do. <laughs> yeah. But that's a great, that's a great way of learning your craft, you know? Yeah. yeah. yeah th- there's a lot of nonsense, which is spoken about kind of like playwrights who come from nowhere and then write breakthrough plays. But, um, you know, I'd, by the time I wrote Motortown, so Motortown was 2006, uh, it was produced, written in 2005, I think. Yeah, written in 2005, produced in 2006. I think Motortown's like my eighth or ninth professionally produced play. Mm. I, think I've, I think I've had about 32 now. So there's quite a lot of them. Yeah. If we talk about all of them for half an hour we'll be here until Wednesday did is there anyone like as uh, like people or groups of people that like were inspirations because obviously you mentioned about like Taxi Driver being as a film an inspiration for the style yeah. of stuff was there like any writers or directors that you like, yeah maybe- certainly by the time by the time I uh, I was made the resident dramatist at the Royal Court in 2000 uh, and it was only really then that I really started thinking about playwriting properly and really started studying the craft and started reading more plays as well, you know, because I was, I uh, had access suddenly to free plays. You know, e- economics was not something to, to, to be ignored. You know, I didn't have like limitless money when I was growing up or when I was in my 20s or when I was, you know, I, I, I had a kid when I was 27. Uh, my first one was 27. I didn't have a lot of expendable cash to go and spend on plays, but I went to the Royal Court as the resident dramatist and they would just give me plays to read. So I was reading about kind of five plays a week and, and just learning my craft in that way with a real element of hunger. I guess the writers who I came to really cherish in those early days and value very much still would be Sarah Kane for sure, uh, Robert Holman for sure, uh, uh, Carol Churchill. I kind of like became fascinated by what Carol Churchill was doing. Um, and then uh, reading outwards from those contemporary playwrights, I adore Chekhov, I adore uh, Wojtsek, you know, Buchner's Wojtsek um, is a play that kind of staggers me. Euripides going back to classical Greek drama, you know, the kind of darkness and mess of Medea is as violent and, and kind of like, uh, troubling as anything that I've written or any of my contemporaries have written and that was written two and a half thousand years ago so yeah yeah 
I get you. I, I, with that, then you say about your inspirations and stuff, and then writing plays. What's that process like? How do you go about writing that play? What's your do you just sit down and smash out a big chunk in one go, or is it um, a really long time? Or how, how do you lot, go about it's a, that? It's a uh, my process, which I've refined over the course of the last kind of twenty years. It tends to repeat itself now. I yeah, tend to apply yeah. a, a version of the same method to everything I write. Okay. Um, and 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 you know the last, the very last part of this method is the writing of dialogue. It's the last thing that I do. The, wow. the, the first thing that I do, the first thing I'll do is um, I, there's a phrase by the, the Anglo-French director, Peter Brook, coined a phrase, uh, the, um, the formless hunch to describe how ideas start. And I very much like that as a kind of, as a kind of image because it describes what it feels like to me to kind of get an idea for a play where there's just a kind of sense that there's something vague and uncertain that I kind of want to write about that kind of exists somewhere over my left shoulder and it doesn't have a kind of shape, uh, but it's, and it, I can't really, I can't really uh, explain it apart from it just kind of feels as though there might be a play over there. I don't know what it is. The most important thing for me to do with that is to leave it alone and not do anything with it. You know, I speak to a lot of beginning writers and one of the things that troubles me about, not troubles me really, but you know, something something I'm often asked about is is how how to deal with writer's block and I, I, I it kind of strikes me that writers who suffer from writer's block are writers who started writing too soon they get their formless hunch and they start writing a scene and I, I, I for me it's been really useful to just not do that just leave the bugger alone I do a podcast myself or I did a podcast myself for a few years for the Royal Court um the um it's called the Royal Court Playwrights Podcast have a listen uh yeah, definitely yeah, well, write, write and subscribe it's called like and subscribe as, uh, <laughs> as, they, as they as they say um um I did one interview I've, there's like 40 interviews with playwrights one of them wow. was with uh, Jez Butterworth who wrote um Jerusalem and the Ferryman amongst Yeah them. he's brilliant yeah he's a wonderful playwright um, and I talked to him about this and he said he knows he's got an idea is good enough to write a play when he's had it for 15 years and it's still there. And I think there's really yeah. something in that. If you've got that form, I've never left an idea for 15 years, but leave the bugger alone. Don't start. If it's still there, it'll, it's, it'll, if it's any good, it'll stay. Yeah. If it doesn't stay, it was never good enough. It was never meant to be. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, normally I'll leave it for about kind of nine months to a year and I'll be doing other things. I'll be writing other plays. I'll be doing podcasts. I'll be kind of like going to rehearsals or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then when it feels right, it'll be time to start researching. And and the research process for me can involve uh, reading novels that are related to the same subject uh, can be involved reading other plays that are related to the same subject, watching films. So with punk rock, watching Elephant or reading Spring Awakening or reading Pains of Youth, looking, uh, listening to music that feels in some sense relevant. Um, at the moment, I'm becoming quite interested because it's always something that, that, that has eluded me. I'm becoming quite interested in early 20th century classical music. Uh, and the thing I'm writing, working on at the moment is kind of a version of The Tempest. So I've been listening to Sibelius's um, music, mu musical score for the production of The Tempest at the Danish Royal National Theatre. And that, and just listening to that music and the insanity and madness of that music yeah, yeah. is really kind of generating something for me. And what I do, what I work with, 
um, your your listeners won't won't um, won't be able to see this. But I work I work in sketchbooks, which are like kind of like artist sketchbooks. Oh, um, uh, I'll hold that up to the camera so all your listeners can see that with their <laughs> yeah. imaginary eye. They've probably got real eyes, but they need to see it in their imagination. <laughs> um, and what I like working with notebooks with blank pages. Um, because it means I can vary the size and the pressure of the text. Uh, so some of these pages are written very, very, very small. And some of them are written in very big letters. Um, don't forget the love and the death is what I've written on that page there. Um, and, and then I fill the notebook up with the research. It's the research period. Yeah, and after yeah. I've finished the research period, after I've watched all the films and I've read all the books and I've done all the work that I want to do, I'll type up the notebook. And in typing up the notebook, um, I think what happens when you when you type up an entire notebook is it's incredibly boring, and I think being bored is a really useful part of creativity, because when 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 you're bored, your mind goes into places when it's restless, yeah. and in that process of typing up, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for character, and from the characters, and I'll do I've got lots of exercises that I do to develop and. Uh, and, and fill out character and relationship and situations. And from those characters and those relationships and those situations, I'll find the narrative, the story. And from the story, I'll find the structure. And for me, structure is a very simple process of just how many scenes are there and where are they set and when are they set. So I'm pumped up the structural decision to end not in the school but and not have William kill himself. That felt to me like a really key structural decision in punk rock yeah. was that he doesn't kill himself, but he goes to the psychiatric, the secure unit, the secure psychiatric hospital in Liverpool and have that last yeah. scene in in an interview room. You know, that I love the, that scene, by the way. Thank yeah. you. That's, that's yeah, really... That's, we were, we, we were going to do it in the, in the, in the round and right. um, the, space, the space that we were using in Swansea, um, yeah. there's an old like supermarket Right. And it's been it's it's abandoned, and then volcano um, uh, volcano theatre. They yeah. went in, and now it's a big theatre space. Oh, um, cool. So you can get really like like what the space we were using. The roof was all like open, so it's oh, just like insulation dangling down. And then we were gonna have it's like a big rectangle, and the uh, the audience were gonna sit around. And then instead of having them on the stage, basically. Uh, we were going to have like books piled up in different levels wow. as like a perimeter around the thing. And right. that last scene was going to be like dead in the middle with like a spotlight. Oh, um, and yeah, I, I just, his complete, I, I don't know. I, for me, I feel like that was his kind of like full like realization, a bit of a breakdown. I, I don't know, but yeah. I, I, I just loved that scene. I okay. absolutely loved it. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed Rehearsing I've seen productions of it where they don't do it, which is quite interesting. Oh, no, Sometimes yeah. because it, it kind of requires an older actor. Mm. And yeah. if they don't have an older actor, they might not do it. I've seen it done as a monologue, which is quite interesting, wow. where an actor just does William's lines as though he's imagining what Dr. Harvey's saying to him. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, sorry. I, uh, uh, sorry, I'm my fault. So I find the structure, and in the, when I've decided how many scenes there are and where they're set and when they're set and, and who's in them and what they want, what the characters in that scene want, yeah. what their objectives are and what's stopping them from achieving their objectives, and then what they do in order to get it. Once I've got all that down, then I'll write the scene. And, and if I'm lucky, um, I'll be either in a physical place or an emotional place where I can write the scenes of a play, you know, really quickly. 
Okay. It's not it's not a massive word count in 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 a play. I don't know how many words are in punk rock or Motortown exactly, but I'd guess at about twenty five thousand. Yeah, it's probably about twenty five thousand mm. words. You know, in comparison to a novel where you might get two hundred thousand. Um, you know, plays are quite short. Twenty five thousand words. It's absolutely possible to write five thousand words a day if you've got a clear day and nothing else. Yeah, on. yeah. You can write yeah. a play in a week if you know what it. If you know what's in it. If you know what's happening you know what the action is you know what the energy is you can just attack the bastard and go for it in a week and that gives a real energy to the writing if you're writing quickly like that so that tends to be what i try and do with my plays that's yeah. the process from the last kind of decade for sure is, is it similar like because I, I i remember this a few years ago and i think this is when i was auditioning for drama school um because i a few years ago started getting into writing myself yeah. um so i was like looking at stuff on youtube of like right. national theater like right. and there was a video that, that you were in about um that the reason i asked about you the way you do it and how your process because yeah. you said in that that when you do a first draft of something mm. you should print it off on paper not on the computer um yeah. is that to like would you say that's just so that what you're reading is is there and there's no way of editing it yeah, I think, I think, I mean, that's a specific question about redrafting. I find when I read a script on a computer, the temptation to just go into the intervene in the script, yeah. just kind of change a full stop to a comma or change one word and then convince yourself that you're doing a rewrite is, is really overwhelming. It's really hard to not do that. Mm. But actually, rewriting is not just about changing grammar or, or, or word count. It's much kind of... Uh, it demands much kind of bigger, bolder, more confident reconsiderations. And uh, I think you only really get an overview, what, what my mentor and friend Stephen Jeffries described as the bird's eye view of a play, if you kind of really read it in one go, just take the hit of it in one go. And reading that on paper is a good, a good thing to do, I think, a good way of doing that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's, that's, yeah. And, and and with with all this writing and stuff, I mean, it has to has to be brought up at some point, I suppose, the whole COVID situation. Um, <laughs> not that we want to talk about it too much, but at the moment, how are you finding that kind of being cooped up and uh, is that helping your creativity? Um, or I think it... I think like a lot of people that I've been speaking to recently, I think um, this part of the lockdown and we're speaking in yeah. the beginning of February 2021. Mm. So it's the third lockdown. Uh, this has been the hardest one. Yeah, definitely. This has been really hard. Yeah, I agree. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the kind of joke that I make is it's as kind of uh, crushingly disappointing and bewildering. Lockdown three is as crushingly bewildering and difficult as Godfather three. So. <laughs> it's really, it's been really hard. But in in the first, like in the the end of last year, from like March to December last year, I wrote um, one and a half new plays, or a brand new play, and then a co-wrote a play with another writer. I wrote a monologue for stage. I wrote about four or five kind of shorts for various kind of digital platforms. Um, I'm starting work on a kind of collaborative piece with a choreographer and a drum and bass DJ um, and composer. Uh, I've written a film and two pilot episodes of TV dramas. Well, so yeah. I've been really busy. <laughs> You've not stopped by the sounds of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, go on. I, I was going to, funnily enough, I was going to ask about, because... 
Um, is it film, film and TV? Do you, is this like the first time you've ventured into that, or have you? Ex- it's like... not the first time. I I um, started. I wrote. I think maybe six, five or six first episodes of TV dramas in the noughts, all of which were rejected. Um, I got paid for writing all of them um, and paid more than I was paid for many plays. Um, But I found the process of generating and creating material and kind of writing things uh, and then having those things, um, um, you know, rejected without without them seeing any life at all, so overwhelmingly dispiriting that um, when the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime happened, which was a job that changed my life just because, you know, normally my plays will play to audiences, total audiences of maybe, I don't know, say the Royal Court Theatre has 400 people and you maybe play 30 shows there. So that's what 12,000 people, yeah. you know, maybe get between 12 and 20,000 people for a run of a show. Um, Curious Incident was seen by 5 million people. I was, so, I was one of them. Yeah, I saw it in London. And Frantic Assembly worked. worked um, it's amazing. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I've worked. I had a, I remember I had a workshop. They came into college one day, yeah. um, and I'm not the biggest uh, movement person. I'll do it and I'll enjoy it, but I'm just not that great. Um, mm. But oh, just fantastic! Just that different way of thinking about movement and it's important. Oh, you know, yeah. it's important as an actor. You it take really it quite is seriously. Amazing. Even even Ethan, even if you're not interested in choreography or dance, you know, just knowing that you communicate as an actor. Yeah, you'll com- you'll be communicating now as much with your left hand as you're communicating yeah. with your voice and as an artist you need to know your instrument mm. and take responsibility for that i remember working i worked i was really fortunate to work with the irish actor andrew scott a couple of times he did uh, a play of mine called birdland at the royal court and he did um, a monologue of mine called seawall and um i went to what and watch seawall with a major choreographer who, who quite weird a choreographer called Wayne McGregor who's quite a leading international choreographer was the chief choreographer at the Royal Ballet but who I went to school with I knew because I went to school with him um the uh and I went with Wayne to watch to watch Andrew do Seawall and he said and all Andrew does is uh he just comes out to the downstage center and talks to the audience but Wayne said watching him was like watching a dancer he said he's a dancer even though he's yeah. just standing still he wasn't doing mm. anything kind of like demonstrative he wasn't doing frantic assembly style work mm. he was just but his poise and his control of his body was yeah. so confident that he, he had the control of a dancer he's brilliant Andrew Scott he's he's one of the great actors that I've worked with one mm. of the great actors that I've worked with yeah. um uh yeah so Curious incident meant that financially I was able to afford to say I'm yeah. not doing television development anymore because it's just going nowhere. Yeah. So I stopped writing for television. Uh, and just in the last kind of six months, because the theatres are closed, you got to do something to stay off the streets, haven't you? Or just <laughs> yeah. stop from going mad. Keep yourself out of trouble. And... Keep yourself out of trouble. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. so I, I decided to start making some screen work again. Whether anything happens with it or not, I've no idea. Whether um, if we're able to open the theatres in the next year or so, if I then just jack the TV in and just kind of do go back to theatre again, I don't know. Because I've actually quite enjoyed writing the television. It's been quite enjoyable to do.
Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine that's quite a different process writing writing a TV series or a film compared to writing a play. Um, yeah, I mean it's a different form, so that's one thing. Um, the average stage play. So say I, something I often talk about is I wrote a screenplay of Motortown back in the noughts. Um, and they're both the play and the screenplay were about the same length, about kind of 90 pages, 80 to 90 pages. The stage play has eight scenes in and the screenplay had 120. So just that kind of like the nature of screenwriting being structurally different to stage writing um, was, was is, is, is really central to that difference. But the industries are different as well, man. The... Um, you know, you're working with more people when you make a screenplay. You're working with producers uh, and you'll be getting notes from more people and ideas and feedback from more people. Yeah. So um, uh, they're different industries and they're different art forms. Dennis Kelly said to me once that um, the thing about a screenplay is that it's a work of prose, not a work of drama. It's more like a short story or a novel than it is like a, like a play. And I think there's some truth in that. Yeah, I think screen... Uh, like screenwriting and film writing is something as well, obviously as well as like playwriting and it's always something that's interested me massively is writing films and TV. I think it was just because I was brought up more with TV as I think most yeah. people are with TV yeah. and film. Yeah. I'd that process, that yeah. process is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah so uh, just a couple more questions. Um, one of them is, I don't know, it might be a bit deep in my be, but like, is there anything because obviously you've been in the industry for quite quite a while now. You've you've got you know you've got a fantastic career. You've written some great stuff. Is there anything like that you regret, like you had done or wish you'd done with anything like? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a really interesting question. I don't think I've been asked that before. I ask that every time. Every time I see somebody, like, he's I, just I, stopped. Yeah. He's I, just, know, I know. I've just stolen your question. He's just he's like, just oh, he's just stolen it. it off as his question. That's really shocking. Oh, <laughs> Sharon, no, no, it's, it's, it's you know, I'm sharing. You know, that's I just, I don't know if your Wi-Fi is going to cut out or not. Ethan, <laughs> get it in there. Uh, it's all right. Okay, I forgive you. I'm sure, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure there's a there's a lot of things. I'm quite. I'm lucky. You know. I'm really lucky. I'm lucky with the work that I've done and the people I've worked with. And I'm really fortunate to have been making theatre at a time that until very recently was really vibrant. Uh, and there was kind of energy and there was money in theatre, not necessarily to make, but there was government money to support the production of new plays. And that was really, really fortunate. So it'd be churlish to kind of regret, regret to regret anything too, too strongly. I wonder if, um, if there was anything that I'd kind of like, like if I could formulate the regret in terms of something that I wish I could go back and slap myself around the face and say, don't fucking think about that or worry about that, Stevens, you prick. Um, it would be, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It would be carried within your question because it would be to never use the word career, to not, to not think at all about career to not get anxious about what's going to happen next or who's going to do my next play or where it's going to get a life or any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are so many elements. I, I prefer the phrase working life than a career because I think there are so many elements of our working life that we can't change as artists, as actors, you can't change. You don't know 
who the next casting agent is going to come and see your work is. You don't know um, who the next agent is. You don't know what's going to get commissioned on television or for theatre or where there might be roles for you or where there might not be. You can't control that, man. You can't control it. And we need to have a certain amount of understanding of the things we can change and we can control in our lives and the things that we can't. And the things that I can change as an artist is I can change my work. I can make my plays better. And if, if I think if as a writer, I just focus on the work and not the career, I have the strength of clarity of thinking to focus only on, on what I'm writing, not what on what's happening with it, then I think it's just better for my health and my mental health and leads to better plays. Yeah. And if I, if I could say that to my younger self, then it would be don't, don't waste so much time in your life worrying about whether you're going to make it or not, because it's just bullshit. Don't yeah. worry about making it. Don't worry about succeeding because it's just bullshit. Yeah. What you can worry about is being a better actor or being, for me, being a better writer, you know, mm. and, and reading more and working harder and doing the work that I really want to, to write only the plays that I wish somebody else had written so that I could see them. That's all, in the end, that's all that matters. Everything else is just coloring in. If you have any agenda other than that, then, then, then you're just being distracted. And hold on to that, and don't don't worry about the noise, because you know. And also, you you know, work to live, don't live to work. That in the end, what's not important is the plays you're going to be in, or the films you're going to be in, or the TV you're going to be in. It's the days you're going to have. It's the kind of air you're going to breathe. Yeah. It's the yeah. people you're going to fall in love with, and the adventures you're going to have. That's what fucking matters. That's what matters. Hmm. Having the grace to be kind and having the grace to live with a certain amount of clarity that's what matters the career is just a bullshit distraction yeah, yeah. i think a lot of people in our industry need that as well because especially for me because i know i do it to myself all the time like especially with mental health it's such a dangerous yeah. game to play because it, especially in acting um mm -hmm. you have that pressure you well i've got it i've got to get work i've got to do this i i need to impress these people i i want to impress myself yeah. um and then you forget about everything else and then you realize oh crap i've been stuck in a room trying to learn this monologue and not actually gone outside for a walk in like yeah and, and that's um, really it's yeah. really dangerous it can be really it is, dangerous yeah. and and the of all those people you should worry about impressing i think the, the only one really w worth impressing is yourself yeah that mm. goes closer to my idea about making the work better Hundred percent. You know, just do the do a better performance. Be more true to that. And the, act, yeah. the great actors I've worked with, and I've worked with some really, really, really great actors, and they're always the hardest workers. They're always yeah. the hardest workers. They always, and they're always the humblest people in the room. Like Andrew Scott in a rehearsal room, is just defined by his grace and humility. You know. Uh, he's friendly and he's approachable and he brings a sense of fun to the rehearsal room. Yeah. And that, that, that's so important. That's so central to this kind of working life. Do you know, I think that's really key to like, what you've just said then. I think it's quite key, especially to like myself and Ethan being, yeah. you know, students and like a lot of the people in our year or the years above us that all, you know, listen to this. Yeah. That's like the right advice is to just, if, if there's anyone you need to impress, it's yourself. You should like, I'm a bit, I've, I've grown to be a firm believer in like for years trying to impress other people. Like, why should you give a shit? Like what other people, yeah. if you're, if you're happy, if you're happy with it, 
Like and you should and, go and push yourself. It, it's it's the the hardest thing is being able to honestly measure the the quality of your own work. I think that's the hardest thing for any artist. I think it's yeah, particularly yeah. hard for stage actors because necessarily the stage actor is the one artist who can necessarily not see their own work. And yeah. you know you can't see it. You you've yeah. no idea the amount of times I've met actors after a performance that they think has gone terribly badly and it's yeah. not, it's gone really well. They just don't, you're just not able to read it or can happen vice versa. I've been yeah. to see actors after a show that I thought wasn't quite as sharp or wasn't quite as concentrated as it had been. And they think it's their best show. So, you know, a stage actor in a way, you just need to, uh, you just need to surround yourself with intelligent people who you trust, who you trust to tell you the truth about the quality of your work. And, and um, yeah, and, you know, of course, you're, you're, what, your second or third year at drama school? First. First. All right. Yeah. So, you know, you're just entering into that. And it's this is a fucking rubbish way to do a first year at drama school. I really oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. I think it's a worse <laughs> way to do a third year at drama school. Oh, yeah, we've all talked about that. that yes. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think come the summer term, you're will be starting to be out again and making work and that'll be a real relief and a blessing yeah, for you guys definitely. but of course it's going to feel like a cauldron of pressure to really be kind of getting the agents getting the casting agents getting the jobs if you possibly can turn that voice down and just think about what it is to be alive and if you go for a fucking walk do you know what it will make you a better actor if you if you if you if you do a bit of Pilates or a bit of meditation or you go for a run or you go for a swim if you can possibly swim anywhere, it will make you a better actor. If you yeah. read a book that is not related to the work you're doing, it will make you a better actor. Hundred you know, percent. The great actors that I've worked with have got uh, searching intelligences where they're they're just kind of exploring the world. You go and see art. I mean, I know you can't at the moment, but you can walk around. You can walk around your towns where you're living. You know, you can go for walks and you can see what's surrounding you, and you can watch the people around you. That's all taking your work seriously. If you go for a walk and you watch the people, are you in Swansea now? Uh, no, I'm. I'm back up in Loughton now. Right. Um, so you, you go yeah. for a walk around Loughton, and all that area and that area, this is a fascinating part of London the Loughton area, because there's so much kind of different diversity. You know, you, you, <laughs> yeah. there's so many, there's there's the kind of rich money of Essex is not that yeah. far away from yeah, that. Def- you yeah. know, tax evading kind of gangsters with, with mansions kind of on the way to Epping Forest. Well, it, yes, it's like literally, <laughs> Loughton. it's like a street of like these houses, which are like hotels. And then you go to the street next to it and it's just- yeah. it's, ridiculous. It's, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I call it a B-Tech Hollywood. That's why I it's, call it. Because it's, 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 it's so you know, weird. You're, as an actor, your your subject matter, your 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 subject yeah. is what it is to be a human. Go and find the humans and look at them. Go and see how they walk. Go and see how they how they manifest their humanness. Because those people with the it's like the starting point with punk rock, realizing that not all private schools were kind of like amoral monsters. Yeah, those those millionaire mansions, they're, they're humans in there too, you know, and they've got their fear and their vulnerability. Definitely. They've got their sadness and their kind of broken hearts and their anxiety about the lockdown, and they've got people they love who are, who've died, and 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 you know your work as an actor is to investigate their humanness as well. So yeah, um, we've got two more questions. Just a quick All round. Right. Um, 
we do this every every episode now. Um, oh, cool. Do you have any suggestions, yeah. film, TV? Play? I know you've said a few, but anything that you you should think right, you've got to listen to this or you've got to watch this. What's what's something that something that you've sure. seen recently, maybe? That's another hard question. Is it's that a tough question. Yeah, it's, um, there's so much, and I'm I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think um, something specific for you two as kind of actors at the start of your working lives. Um, so we've talked about him already. I talked about him in an interview yesterday, but Andrew Scott, series two of Fleabag, episode four, I think, or five, there's a scene between Andrew and Phoebe Waller-Bridge where they're sitting outside a church and he's telling her that he can't be with her. And suddenly a fox goes through the churchyard and takes them up the scene and they scream a fox. That scene from both Phoebe and Andrew is acting of world-class intelligence and poise. And if as an actor you watch that scene 30 times and just look at the decisions that Phoebe and Andrew make, yeah. what they decide to do with their bodies, with their faces, with the language, how they mark the interruption of the fox, you'll learn more about acting doing that than anything right. else. What an answer. That's the best answer we've had. Uh, this is the final question. This one is a bit obscure. We like to do this one to throw people off. Yeah. Um, if you could have any flavour of Chris, like, or, or a packet of Chris, what you have in? Yeah, what yeah I mean, it's, for me, that's a really easy one because I'm afraid it's very mainstream, uh, but it's definitely salt and vinegar. I, I said that. It's definitely something to go. It has to be. It has to be. I mean, I, I can't, I genuinely can't understand people who wouldn't answer that question with salt and vinegar. I think they're just all liars. I think people who say cheese and onion are just liars. I think people who say ready salted are just weird. And I think people who say like, roast chicken or prawn cocktail are just, they're just showing off. They're, they're twats. They're lying. <laughs> the only answer to that question is salt and vinegar. Is there a, is it? <laughs> Specifically, Walker's salt and vinegar. Yes. And if you can get it, although it's not easy to get, but this might just be my anxiety about my, my age and weight. Um, Walker's do an oven roasted crisp as oh, opposed to yeah. deep fat. And if you can get that in salt and vinegar, they're nice. That's the best crisp. What an answer. Um, <laughs> what an answer. Well, Simon, thank you very much for, for coming on and chatting. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been fantastic. It's a real it's been pleasure. Brilliant. Good luck, guys. Good thank luck. you very well, much. Well done for taking the initiative to do this. It's a hard time for everybody. And um, I think look, Aiden's frozen. He's going to. I can still hear you, though. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I can still hear you. Take care anyway. of yourselves and know that this will end, man. Every, everything that has ever yeah. happened has ended. This yeah. will end. And when it does, the one thing I say, I say to a lot of people at the moment, you know, if you look at the history of creativity and culture in the last hundred years, the times of greatest. Uh, energy and imagination and vitality have been in the decades after catastrophe. If you look at what was happening in the world of art and yeah. music and cinema and theatre in the 20s after yeah. the Second World War and the 50s and early 60s after the, after, after the Second World War, sorry, the 20s after the First World War, 50s and 60s after the Second World War, that was when the forms were reimagined and reinvented and what art was for was really interrogated. And I'm really, really fucking certain that the 2020s will be a time of immense 100% and imagination. Yeah, arts and definitely. Just go and be the heart of that, guys. Just we will. We'll try. Thank you very we'll much. Try. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. Take care. Thank you. 
<laughs> that was good, wasn't it? What a guy, what a man, uh, what a chat we had there. That was everything and more that lived up to every expectation I think me and Ethan had of this interview. And we really enjoyed it. Uh, I think we both benefit, benefited quite a lot from it as well. Um, as I'm hoping you guys also do. Because um, we talk about a lot there. But what a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for listening uh, to this episode and this series so far. If you have just, you know, picked and choose episodes to listen to, that's completely fine. But do go and listen to the ones you've not listened to because um, I think it's been a really good series so far. Um, We've got a few more episodes planned, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. There is only 11 episodes of this series. Um, This is episode 8, so we've only got three more left. Uh, but yeah we've got some really exciting stuff planned and uh, obviously Ethan's on board now and we've got a producer on our team who I forgot to mention who it is it's Jamie from episode one he's been there from the start Um, he's going to be our producer he's also going to be coming on to the episodes as well every now and then to join us in the, um, the madness that we go on with in our episodes but he's going to be producing us he's going to be producer jam uh, if you like we're very excited we've got a little team going we've made some exciting movements in this first series you know getting the likes of max on and then obviously in this interview having simon stevens on a man who's won an olivier and a tony just mental stuff um so we're very grateful for everything that's that's happened so far this series but it's just the beginning you know we're trying to stay creative covid's been tough on everyone and this has given us something to enjoy and hopefully you guys to look forward to as well uh, and i think that's about everything we've got to say but thank you so much for tuning into this episode and spending an hour of your precious time listening to this uh, i hope it's been great and apart from that all i've got left to say is you know what's coming guys stay happy stay well See you next time. Goodbye.